Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. I'm Diana Thader, and I'm an artist. I'm Rachel Rose. I'm an artist. From David's Werner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. I believe that your belief system comes through your work. It, it, it filters through your work and out into the world. For what I do, it's for me, much more generative to think about art as a context in a container than as the end all for what I'm doing. I'm Lucas Werner, and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians, and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This week's pairing, Diana Thader and Rachel Rose. We were really lucky to have these two artists, who both work in video, come together on the show where they actually met for the first time. They're from different generations, but their interests are uncannily aligned. Diana has been a pioneer of video, film, and installation since the early 90s. Among other things, her work explores the experience of animals and threats to the natural world. She's also played a major role in bringing video out of screening rooms and into museums and galleries alongside painting and sculpture into the wider conversation being had about art. Rachel has very quickly established herself in an astonishing range of formats, documentary, animation, even a forthcoming period piece of sorts with actors and scripts. She's interested in a similarly wide range of topics, from robotics, technology, and space, to the fear of approaching adulthood, and, like Diana, the captivity of animals, and what their experiences might be like. Both Rachel and Diana have also been using video to address questions around trauma in the natural world as well as the worlds we create. Um, I thought that just to kind of get the ball rolling, we might hear from you, Diana, a little bit about your sort of history and how you arrived at really video, but the, the sort of career in which you find yourself now, because I think from what I've read and what we know, it's sort of a circuitous path in some ways. Sure. Well, I had not planned to be an artist, even though I'd always made art. And I went to undergrad and studied art history, and I loved when, it. So When I, you said always made art, even as a kid? Was yeah, that yeah. That? As a child, I would make um, all kinds, yeah, all kinds of painting, sculpture, whatever, you know, out of kid stuff, clay or whatever. So I never planned to be an artist because I never thought I could be an artist. And so I went to undergrad and I studied art history. And then I worked in the architecture field for a while because I thought I wanted to be an architect. But it, it occurred to me or it became obvious to me that female architects don't get to build, especially at that point, which was the sort of mid-80s. And I realized I would never get to make something. So I decided that I would do something where I could make something. And it would all be under my own steam, my own power, you know, my own labor. And I could make something real in the world. 
And so I went to graduate school and I moved to LA and I had no idea that I was going to work in video, but I had these great teachers. I had Stephen Prina and Mike Kelly, Patty Podesta. And um, there were people there teaching video and people who had a history in video, like Bruce and Norman Yanomoto, for example, in California or in LA, you know, video and history. And I started making video. And I never stopped. And then I never made anything else because I loved it and it was the perfect way to express my ideas. But the funny thing was that all of my teachers said to me when I started doing it, why are you doing this? You will never make a living. You will never have a show because video was in that state at that moment. The only people making video were like Bill Viola, Gary Hill, you know, Erica Beckman, for example. But for the most part, you couldn't show because the equipment was too unwieldy the equipment was too expensive and uh i remember in my final review in graduate school mike kelly kept saying to me i don't know why you want to do this or in my best mike voice i say i don't know why you want to do this and he always and and i got out and i just did it what drew you to architecture in the beginning the interesting thing to me about architecture was making spaces you know, for people, but also for purposes, for people who have purposes, their reasons for being in certain kinds of spaces. And I was really interested in how you construct them, but also how you sequence them. Because I'm very interested in my work in choreography. And I think I've heard Rachel mention choreography in an interview I listened to. I'm very interested in choreography and movement from space to space. So I naturally sort of moved into installation, especially even when I first started making video, I was making these kind of installation pieces. So I was really excited by people moving through space, doorways, walls, windows. And you see all of that in my work is this, I feature elements of the architecture like a doorway, like a window, you know. So I'm like a corridor, for example. I love, I love to work in corridors. So I have an appreciation for all kinds of architectural spaces. And I mean, speaking of architecture, this is one of the sort of strange shared, I think, things between you, Rachel, and Diana. You, of course, I know from other conversations, were, you were also really interested in architecture early on. I think you also were interested in painting early on. So there was also a move into video. Yeah, I think I also when I was growing up from when I was a kid until whenever was always making things. But when I went to college, I felt like, okay, now I have to decide on a real thing I'm going to do in the real world. And architecture to me felt like oh, I could still be an artist, but I could apply it to something that had value to people in the, in the real world. You could change the way they experience space. Maybe you could change their life or something. It felt like the only way that I could somehow align things that I felt politically with things that I felt aesthetically. And so I was studying architecture as an undergrad and uh, planned to apply to architecture grad school after, after school. And I worked for an architect during that time. And then I actually was both bad at it and found it depressing. <laughs> and In what way depressing? I guess that I felt like I could be motivated by 
something I wanted to do, like an idea, but that it would be so watered down and so filtered through the process that the little inkling of an idea would be left. Maybe, maybe that, maybe not that at all. Right, but maybe not I mean, that, right? a, a client is a real thing and it's quite different when you're an artist because you don't exactly have a client that changes everything, I think. So, so yeah, so I didn't study art history as an undergraduate and then I didn't know what to do. And I was a huge Jeff Wall fan. And I had went to the court told literally just because Jeff Wall had done it. And I thought Jeff Wall was <laughs> the shit. Um, but I, I was painting at the same time. And then I um, wanted to move back to New York and find an excuse to do that. So I went to grad school at Columbia. And then I was like, okay, yeah, I can't be an artist. This really sucks. This is the worst need to come up with another career path thought that this could be possible after this uh, and why i'm so curious about that i think a lot of artists and artists to be have a moment where there's sort of there's a there can be a real crisis i mean i think it can go in two directions like either it's sort of blinders on i'm never going to think about it or it's sort of like this crisis which can then lead to real clarity which i think it did in your case yeah um i mean i was going to this studio at columbia and i was making paintings for what about what participating in what conversation I have no idea nothing really and I felt like the all of the critiques that were being developed in the context of school and this isn't specific to Columbia this is a grad school thing I guess yeah I felt kind of nihilistic in that in that way I mean Diana how do you navigate that as a teacher do you I mean do you you're dealing with students all regularly the all the time yeah for 25 At years at Art Center primarily, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yeah, all, mostly all. at Art, a little bit at UCLA, UC San Diego. Curious, like, what is grad? what do the graduate students feel like to you these days? Millennials are a difficult generation because I've been through a lot of generations right. of artists. Right. But what Rachel says is, is, I find, you know, not all the time, but a student who is nihilistic about their work and just feels like I can't do it. Why am I doing this? And it's one of those questions of finding out if they really are an artist, which teachers can tell a lot of the time when you're not sure. A teacher can tell you're an artist or whether they're not an artist. We've had students who turn out to be writers, theorists, work in the film industry. So art led them someplace else. When you're interacting with a student, you know, what would be a kind of sign that this person is, that this is the right path for them? I think it's hard, Lucas, because there are natural, I always say there are natural artists and there are unnatural artists. A natural artist is someone who it just comes out. And yeah. I wasn't that person and I considered myself to be a kind of unnatural. Nothing I touch turns into art, only what I intend. And so you see kids in that position who see the kids who are just these natural artists, and those kids have a very hard time. And I always try to explain to them that that was my path, and nothing I made turned into art until I picked up a camera. Right. Yeah. And did you find, I mean, you, you said that being an architect, a female architect at the time, you felt like you wouldn't be able to make anything. Did you have resistance as a sort of, did you feel resistance as a sort of female artist in a difficult medium at that time? It's interesting. It was a very interesting moment because when I started working, 
people my age were not going into video. I later found out, of course, about Stan Douglas, who was only you know a year older than I am or something, who was working in video. We found each other. There were not there was like no one. No one I studied with came out making video. But the reason I didn't have resistance is is a really practical one. And that is I saved up all the money I had and I used my student loans and I took a loan out against my car and I bought three video projectors, these big giant three gun, you know, red, green, blue video projectors and synchronizable VHS players. (laughs) And I went around, I had studio visits and I would say, I have my own equipment. (laughs) And so people started giving me shows because it didn't cost them anything. And I had this equipment. So there was, I didn't feel resistance as a woman. You know what I mean? I felt resistance as a, as an artist working in video, but I overcame it by having this equipment. It was kind of an amazing door opener. It's a weird thing, an artist who comes with her own video equipment. So I didn't have resistance then. I feel it much more now, so much, like you can't believe. Like there's nothing like being a mid-career, middle-aged female artist. There is nothing worse, I think, as an artist. Yeah, that's, I mean, the video thing is, is interesting because I was sort of curious it's not like people, it's not like even now there are that many people going into video. I mean, it's this sort of myth that now it's sort of like a medium that people are pursuing. Oh my God, I know. It's not, <laughs> you know, I mean, and so I was curious about your experience shifting into video. I mean, do you feel, do you have lots of peers? I mean, do you feel like there's a a conversation happening around video art that is active or do you feel a little bit like you're kind of out on your own, Rachel? Is it, you know? Well, I'll say in grad school, there were definitely other people who were working in video and doing other things, but I didn't see myself as working in video. I came in as a painter and I planned to leave as a documentary filmmaker. I didn't plan to leave as an artist when I decided that art wasn't for me and et cetera. So I actually didn't take any classes on the history of video art. I didn't take any learning video anything classes. Another artist who had graduated early earlier, Ronnie Bass taught me in the DMC. So I kind of felt like I was in my, a little bit like on some separate trajectory because I didn't see myself as, as going into art when I finished. And I definitely have friends now that make film and video, but I don't know if there's a conversation so much because it feels like everyone is, is doing something that's coming more internally. Yeah. I think it's, it's, Interesting. There used to be more of a conversation about it because so few people were making it and we all knew each other. But now I think I agree. A lot of people, especially, you know, I see with my students, they make, and, you know, my teachers did it. Stephen Prina did it. Mike Kelly did it. Patty Podesta did it. They would make video also. So it's like an also. And they didn't study how to edit or, and neither did I, by the way. I had no teacher for editing and all of those things. And then because they're doing it in addition to painting or in addition to sculpture or in addition to installation, they don't participate in a conversation around the medium itself, mm-hmm. you know? And there used to be a much more tight conversation about the medium. Right. You know, 
I'm curious about the shift because you said about architecture, you know, that you have the possibility theoretically of affecting someone's life, of changing someone's life. And I've thought in both of your cases about the kind of, let's say, ethical underpinnings of being in video, you know, that there's the possibility of exploring otherness or something else. I mean, is that what might have attracted you, for example, Rachel, to, to shifting, let's say, from painting into wanting to be a documentary filmmaker, even if that's not how it unfolded? Yeah, I think definitely. I was curious about other experience, other life in animals and not. Mostly I felt like, how do you extend, how does one extend outside of themselves? They do through making a story about that experience of going out into the world and seeking an understanding. And so for me, video was that container, but I don't know, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I guess, think at the time or necessarily, I mean, I'm not interested in making documentary films now, but at the time I didn't think I'm so interested in documentary as a format. I'm so interested in the history of documentary or the great documentaries that have been made, maybe from, you know, thinking about structural things, grabbing those. But otherwise I was thinking about, this is just a container. I can do this expansion that I'm interested in. What is it about documentaries in particular? Is well, it like- it's just simple, like going to a place, filming something, bringing back that material and putting it together. But so the idea doc- that it would take you out into the world to a specific location, you'd capture something. That you could of- interview people, that you could engage with something that wasn't looped in within the studio, within art speak. It's also a place where you make it yourself and you can shoot it yourself. You know what I mean? You can shoot it yourself. You can make a documentary for very little money and you can you satisfy your curiosity, explore things. But I have a, a, an attachment to documentary film also and maintain a documentary sort of practice in that I go to places and film real, real things. But yeah, I understand the attraction to documentary and most of my favorite films are actually documentary films. Really? Yeah. I like like what would some of those, what I'm curious. I was just watching Fast, Cheap and Out of Control. I love Errol Morris. And I was, I, you know, am, have been a big fan of the Maisels yeah. and who else have I loved? D.A. Penny Baker. You know, so, and I teach a lot of documentary film. There's something about it. You could make it yourself. Film, you need a crew. Video, you don't need a crew, necessarily. Right, right, right. Maybe it's also something about documentaries are made in the edit. Mm-hmm. So from a hand perspective, you can make it with your own hand. I totally agree. And I'm really, that's something I've always said, is that I want my work to be handmade by me. And, and I think that's very true. That question of ethics, you know, is that actively on your mind when you go out and look at whether it's a dolphin or a kind of an, an animal that is endangered or could become, you know, it's, there's definitely a moment where it feels, it never feels didactic, the videos, but it certainly feels like it's hinting at an awareness that we ought to have. Yeah, and I think that that is an ethic, is, is a belief that awareness changes people. And that is an ethic and that is a belief. I don't want it to be like moralistic or overtly political. I want it to be, you know, subtle and beautiful, but it has an ethical belief system behind it. And I believe that, you know, your 
belief system comes through your work. It, it, it filters through your work and out into the world. Right. And is that really, is that about, if you were to sort of hone in on it, is it about re- resisting the objectification of yeah. on some level, right? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's the natural world and, or kind of the animal world or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's this idea about confronting the other, the sort of ultimate other, the animal, you know, and there was a lot of conversation when I was in school about otherness and the other. And of course it's, it's, was one of the most important concepts to come out of the 90s. And I thought a lot about it, and I thought a lot about subjectivity and about how subjectivity is constructed and how we as subjects associate with other kinds of subjects. So I wanted to deal with this sort of ultimate other, this other with whom we could not communicate. Right. I'm curious how that, I feel a lot of that could be applied to some of your thinking, you know, and I'm Rachel, I'm just sort of curious about how you, how you would, resp- you know, like what your response would be. Is that something that you're actively pursuing as well? Kind of like resisting objectification or is it more kind of projecting ourselves into worlds and experiences that are more saturated than we might've expected or, you know, that give us a sense of life that we didn't really anticipate? Well, in the first work I made called Sitting, Feeding, Sleeping, I went to different zoos across the country, East Coast and West Coast. And one of the things I was struck by was how subjective zoos are. Different zoos express different ideas of animals. So the Smithsonian Zoo in DC is like, feels a bit like a library. And then the zoo in San Diego feels like a theme park and the zoo in LA feels really depressing. I'm not sure what that one feels like. Mm -hmm. And then there, and then, well, obviously the Central Park Zoo feels like a building or the Bronx Zoo feels like a park or... I was always so shocked that the Bronx Zoo and the Central Park Zoo, which is what I visited growing up, felt so different. So different. Wildly different as spaces. Even the experience is supposed to be roughly the same. There's a zoo in Florida that feels like an ecological preserve. So I was struck by how these places where animals are kept captive are expressions of really local ideas of people, of themselves. You know, for example, in the Bronx Zoo, there's the polar bear there that really just has a rock yeah. and a piece of plastic. That's in your, fil- in your piece, That's, right? Yeah. yeah. And a little bit of water. And so this is like a representation of an environment a polar bear might live in, but it's absolutely removed from that environment. And so I was looking at in that work, what does it mean for someone a person, but also an animal, to live in environments that are abstracted from a natural, reproductive, social, physical way of existing. And what what does that produce when an animal or a person exists in this abstracted environment? And it obviously produces depression, both in animals, but also in people. So I guess in that particular work, but I think of animals and explore them pretty differently in each work. But in that work, I was looking at like, what, what, what's the same about us? How in looking at the way an animal exists in a zoo, can I think about myself in a building? Yeah. And so I, I, I know 
what you're saying, and it's really interesting because I've always said that nature, for the most part, is constructed for us parks and na- national parks and smaller city parks, et cetera, and zoos, animals, that all of these ideas that we construct about them are really ideas about ourselves. So it's about how we construct ourselves. I'm really interested in uh, natural history museums and the way they do dioramas, which I, I find fascinating. And it's different all over the world, you know, how people make dioramas for animals, for taxidermied animals. Like what sorts of things do you look at when you look at a diorama like the the i mean is it the way the interaction is staged or yeah it's the, it's the staging of the interaction but also i was at the la uh, museum of natural history which is a really great one and they a gorilla from the la zoo had just died and they were stuffing him and they're going to put him in the natural history museum but he had been born in captivity and i my friend and i went in and there was a man in the case there was an artist in the case and he was painting the background for the gorilla and the gorilla was there and i was like this just the whole thing was just messed up and i said to him shouldn't you be painting a cage because this animal spent its entire life in a cage and this animal never lived the way you're proposing you know what i mean so it was this kind of it's this it's the way we want to see them Mm. it's not the way they live when you in in that your piece gorilla 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 it felt like that was part of teasing out the kind of misperceptions Mm. around the kind of freedom of gorillas and in fact their kind of total captivity yes Absolutely. Every endangered species is now, all the members are captive, are essentially captives. I mean, they're captives of our imagination, but they're also captives of rangers and protectors and parks, people who protect the animals from, essentially from poaching. Right. Rachel, I always feel like there's a core idea in the work that you do, or, or an image that fascinates you. Like a minute ago, the, the Philip John's, the glass house is sort of like an anchor sort of object, as it were. But I'm curious how things get layered onto that for you, I guess, in the editing, in that case, in the editing process. I mean, when you find found footage of the hailstorm or of whatever it is, how do things sort of get built out? It's pretty different for each project. I mean, the most recent work I've made in Closure that's coming to New York next year is entirely filmed in it's a period piece set in 17th century growing England. So in that case, everything was built out in the script or most of it was built out in the script and then shot it. And then when I edited it, it was a process of rewriting mm-hmm. and whatever found footage is in there is really there as like a kind of suturing thing that I had to find stuff that I didn't film mm-hmm. in a minute ago. That piece started after hurricane Sandy. And I remember a few months afterwards, there was kind of like this tremor feeling still in the city. Mm. And I was in a coffee shop one day and a gust of wind, kind of Jeff Wall reference there, (laughs) a gust of wind like just flew randomly in front of the glass pane of the coffee shop and everyone in the shop just kind of stopped and was quiet. And then I just started thinking about how permeable glass is and how vulnerable we are actually to our surroundings and Maybe in line with sitting, feeding, sleeping, like what does it mean for us to live in these abstracted buildings, like the skyscraper? What does that do to us? Mm. 
that led me to like get into the history of the skyscraper, which is strangely and eerily extremely recent. <laughs> we think of it as being forever because it's How so proliferate. Oh, the 50s. Yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> and in fact, Philip Johnson's glass house is a kind of symbol for the beginning of the skyscraper. And because of this use of steel and glass, the way that the house is built, which became structurally so significant to the building of the skyscraper. Now it's like every city all over the world, you know, such a large portion of New York City. And skyscrapers are obviously made of this material that's extremely vulnerable, going back to this experience in the coffee shop. And so as experience, I was curious, like, what does it mean for us to live behind glass? How do we experience the outside and the inside of like us, our own internal insides and and what is our experience of the outside? So that led to wanting to go to the beginning of the skyscraper or the glass house film there. And from there, yeah, the work developed from that. But it also led to like, what are analogies in filmmaking that are related to glass? Uh, one analogy is compositing, which is this form of editing within the frame. It's like collage within the frame. So that film also has all this kind of compositing work in it. And I was looking at all these films in the early 2000s and late 90s, Apocalypse films of New York, mm. films like The Day After Tomorrow, right. whatever, I Am Legend, which all feature compositing to express this kind of post-apocalyptic thing. Then thinking about the history of collage and collage's relationship to wartime and trauma, that collage and catastrophe always go together. So this feeling that things are cut and pasted into mm. reality is always paired with one's experience of trauma. Anyway, that's where a minute ago came from. And that's how these different aspects of it develop. That's a really long answer. No, no, that's... But it's in a really interesting answer because I've just started making pieces that are collages. And I just gave a talk that was exactly sort of based on what you just said, which is that collage and trauma go together. And I, I'm really interested in that idea as well. Because you're missing the transitional... When you're not traumatized or experience isn't traumatic, you can show a gradation of experience. Exactly. But you can't when there's a trauma. No, when there's a trauma, it's like two things slam together. You yeah. know, your, your existence, your real life, your everyday life, and then this thing which is completely outside of it and transforms mm. it. Yeah, it's this, it's this kind of traumatic experience and the sort of cut paste of collage. Particularly, I was thinking about Hannah Hoch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the German collage artists prior to World War II. And that really interests me, this idea of collage in film and video. So much of our, I mean, Sandy was an example of collage. It was not here. And then a minute later, it was here. And it felt like, I mean, I remember so distinctly being in my apartment on the Bowery and the lights going out and being like, why are the lights out? And then looking out the window and just seeing no lights in all of New York City. I mean, it was like, Wow. That's a collage experience, but also we live in a moment where collage feels like it's all, coming all the time. All the time. Are you aware of that more and more in your kind of everyday experience or how do you process it? Um, I mean, yes, we all are. How I process it in my work is maybe in fact to consider a time before. So a minute ago is a work that obviously in response to Sandy, collage, etc. But this work, the two most recent works I've made, which are both set in 17th century agrarian England, the most recent one, Enclosure, has very little collage. 
as I was saying, is scripted and a period piece. Um, and I guess I was curious to understand a mindset when magic was real, darkness was different, landscape wasn't cut up. Um, mm. And looking at a moment, the piece, and my interest is looking at a moment of transition, um, maybe when magic died, light was introduced, landscape cut. Uh, those are kind of the roots of modernity and how we're living. So I guess um, the way that I have responded to like uh, the, the experience that we're living that you describe is, is to look at an experience that's different than how we're living. You know, I'm thinking... You mentioned this at the very beginning of the conversation, the kind of difficulties, mid-career difficulties, especially as a woman. And I, Rachel, you and I have spoken about existing in some ways, wanting to exist or you wanting to exist more on the periphery of the art world in some way. That sort of like being in the thick of it is not necessarily the zone of interest for you necessarily, that your interests are narrative in many ways in, in an art world that's typically not that interested in narrative, but interested in objects. Yeah, well, I think art has a pretty great function, which is that it can be a container with a set of deadlines to produce and work. And for me, each opportunity and deadline I've had, I am trying to use as a container for learning and growing what I can do with story. And what I mean is not just learning how to tell a story, but learning why I would tell a particular story or what that story means to me. I think thinking about art as a context into itself for me always feels like a dead end, which I think is what you're referring to. Meaning outside of other culture, like as a, as a, as a yeah. self, totally self-contained. As a self-contained thing is a bit, for me, maybe for certain types of art making, that really does make sense. But for, I mean, maybe for example, for painting, that makes sense because there's actually a history for that. I mean, a real history, like a <laughs> yeah, thousands course. years There's, long history yes. that like this context is ripe for. But for what I do, it's for me much more generative to think about art as a context in a container than as the end all for what I'm doing. Right. I don't know if that means that film is the end all either, mm -hmm. but yeah, we all need context and containers and deadlines to move. And yeah. That's what, what and this is motivating is. those in some way, or at least setting some of those. Yeah, what's that. also really good about art, I think, is that people are open. And even though the attention span of art isn't designed for film, it's really designed for a 30-second glance at a painting, um, maybe that doesn't matter so much because uh, people who are helping to produce works have deep investment and commitment to doing experimental mm -hmm. uh other things like story yeah. and that's maybe what matters for actually producing the work um curators and institutions i think are quite i've just only had so many positive experiences They're receptive to different and wanting to try to do something um and that's really rare and also that's rare for that to happen at so many different scales because as we know in film there's certain scales that things work at tiers literally um, and so what a gift it is in a way that art operates between that and around that. Mm. Yeah. I guess for you, it's really the, the Diana, the, the shifting 
you know, shifting perception of, of one's place in the art world or how you see it changing. And art world is a loaded term. I just mean the sort of context in which you see your work sure, speaking to people. You know? Sure. When I first started making work, video was the periphery. Right. Nobody showed it. And I always said that my goal was to be smack in the middle of the institution. And that was a very sort of rebellious thing to say at that moment. And I didn't want to show in video project rooms and these dark video galleries. Like museums would have something in the basement or something where they'd put some video. And I wanted to be with painting, with sculpture. And that's why I started working with light also. So I wanted my work to be among other works of art. But I also wanted to be it to be in a conversation. And I wanted it to stop being a separate conversation. And I wanted it to stop being ghettoized. And I wanted it to join into this conversation about art, not about the art world, right? but about art. But about art, yeah. right, sure. I'm curious your connection to or relationship to story or to narrative. Because, of course, as we had said, video at least presents us with an expectation mm-hmm. of narrative because it's temporal. And, and I think... You know, but but your works are definitely, let's say, less narrative oriented than I would say Rachel's work, or and certainly the scripted work. I think that Enclosure, which is coming, feels like very narrative in many ways, even if it has all the other aspects. So, do you see? How do you see those your projects in that? Let's say, I guess the conversation about video as a kind of everyday medium, a narrative-driven medium or a story-driven medium, and it as an art form. Well, if you think about, you know, a history of, let's say, moving images, and you think about a history of film, you know, film begins two ways. In the United States, it it begins as theater, as storytelling, right? Thomas Edison with all of his little made-up films, like little stories. And but it it's born in France at the same time as documentary. The first, the Lumiere brothers, the women coming out of the sewing machine factory, right? right. So, and documentary is storytelling, but it also has an element or can have an element of abstraction. Narrative is storytelling, and it can have an element of abstraction, but they have different relationships to abstraction. So I was interested in this documentary history. And then, and the way documentary can sometimes go nowhere, you know, or, and then for me, it was, it was nature documentaries. Mm -hmm. You know, my dad was a huge fan of like nature documentaries. So I would watch them and they would always try to turn them into stories like the baby lion, you know, (laughs) lived this way. And of course they're using five different baby lion, you know, five (laughs) different cubs and they're saying it's the same cub. And so I was interested in that kind of storytelling, you know, these 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 p- putting stories onto things, things uh, beings that don't tell stories. Interesting. They don't tell stories about themselves. We tell stories about themselves. And I think one of the interesting things I was thinking about Rachel's work is that it's an exploration of kinds of storytelling. Yeah. How can we tell stories? that are meaningful right you know right 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 and that's kind of not where i'm at i'm in a a much more documentary sort of tradition where it's about observational time as opposed to narrative time or this Mm. other thing which we're talking about which is storytelling time it's not necessarily narrative time it's the time of the children's stories the time of fairy tales that sort of thing Yeah. Thank you both for 
being part of this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Yeah. So thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Diana. This has been a pleasure. Thank you, Lucas. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.